재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Good morning and welcome to the bookend here on TBS EFM 101.3 in Seoul, GFN 98.7 Gwangju and 93.7 Yeosu. Today is Sunday, November 6th, 2016 and I'm your host, Jamie Chang. We have a great show for you today. Our far-flung correspondent Helen Cho has returned from her travels to bring us hot new releases. And then Sophie Bowman and Anton Herr are joining us for Talk It Up. We'll be discussing Ehogadil or Aficionados by Jung Young-soo. In time for Ipdong or beginning of winter tomorrow, Sarah Kwan has brought in a must-read Korean book called Onoe Undo or The Temperature of Words by Lee Ki-ju. And then on David's bookmark, we'll take a look at An Enemy of the People by Henrik Ibsen, a disturbing tale of poison in the public bathhouse water. Let us begin with Carla Bruni singing L'Amoureuse. Il semble que quelqu'un ait convoqué l'espoir Les rues sont des jardins, je danse sur les trottoirs Il semble que mes bras soient devenus des ailes que chacun s'en fout Every Sunday, we start the show with hot new releases. Joining us today is Helen Cho. Helen is a freelance translator and interpreter. Hi, Helen. Hello. Long time no see. Long time no see indeed. How have you been? Uh, great. I went on a book tour in the UK with author Pang Jang-un. Oh, how was that? that was, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. We had four different events in four different cities in four days. Mm-hmm. So we kind of on the road the whole time. But right, it was right. really fun. And uh-huh. like she was really interesting to actually talk to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we had some really good questions from the audiences. Yeah, so that's nice. So you were interpreting everything yeah. that she was saying. Oh, that's exciting. So what book was she promoting? 100 Shadows. I mm-hmm. believe you talked about it with Anton and Sophie okay. before on the show. 100 Shadows. Yes. Okay, check it out. Yes. So let's start uh, this week's hot new releases by looking at this week's bestsellers here in Korea. Okay, it's not every day that you find a history title actually topping the bestsellers chart. It's very exciting, isn't it? There it is. We have um, Son Min Sak's The True Record of Joseon Dynasty or Son Min Sak's Joseon Wangju Shilok right at the top of the chart this week, mm-hmm. followed by Tajungam um, Swap or Lessons in Self-Esteem by Yoon Hong Yoon. And then we have our first novel from Mr. Along the Bottom in 21 Years, and that's Everyday Life After Romance or mm-hmm. Nang Man Dog Yonewa. It's been 21 years yes. since he wrote his last novel, yes. fiction title. Okay. It's been a long, long wait for uh-huh. his fans, uh-huh. but he has been everywhere, sort of, you know, speaking in public. Right, right. What's number four? And uh, number four is another non-fiction title, "Naege Kumapta" or "Thanking Myself" by Chun Seung Hwan. And number five is a title that is 
reaching out to, I think, a great a number of readers. It's a question. It says, "Do you have those moments too?" 그럴 때 있으시죠? By Kim Dae Dong. Uh-huh. You feel like I have to like you know get up and answer. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> number six is an essay collection by um, a rapper in Korea called Tablo. Right. It's called Blow Note. Um, he used to be my one of my favorite actually rappers. Um, mm-hmm. He still is. Well, Epic High is pretty fantastic. <laughs> yes, they are mm-hmm. fantastic, aren't mm-hmm. they? Um, and then we have a series of non-fiction titles in the remaining four spots in top ten. We have Words from Anne of Green Gables by Pek Yongok or Balgang Mori Eni Hanemal, and Sumkyori Param Delte When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. It's at number eight, followed by The Courage to Be Disliked or Mium Badul Yonggi by. Kishimi Ichiro. People still are looking for mm. the courage to be disliked after yes. all this time. I think this title has found a permanent home on the bestseller list <laughs> here in Korea. Yes. <laughs> I just, I think I should just refer to this as that title. <laughs> <laughs> At number ten this week is "Icebergs Are Moving" or "Icebergs on the Move." Pinghanen Unjiginda by a former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mr. Song Minsun. It's a memoir. So you see, the top ten list is actually almost completely dominated by. Non-fiction titles. Mm-hmm. There is not a single Korean fiction title on the list, mm. which is rather unfortunate, I think. Mm-hmm. So, what exciting news do you want to share with our listeners today? You recently came back from the UK. You have exciting news from the yes. UK. This is very, very exciting for uh-huh. readers everywhere, and especially for the likes of you and me, literary translators, mm-hmm. because apparently translated fiction sells a lot better than English fiction in the UK. Oh, there's isn't the market that we should be targeting. I know, isn't uh-huh. that exciting? Uh-huh. So recent sales figures show that the British public had steadily become more and more interested in fiction from other parts of the world. So they've become more open to European and international authors. And then um, we also find that the number of translated books bought in Britain increased by you never guess an astonishing 96% between oh, wow. 2001 and 2015 uh-huh. so that's just 4% short of 100 so mm-hmm. you could say it nearly doubled right right and that's really impressive because translated fiction made up about 7% of all UK fiction sales in 2015 so it's still quite a small market mm-hmm. but one that is actually rapidly increasing and expanding mm-hmm. I was actually going to say that's quite a high percentage considering it's the UK isn't it? Mm-hmm. But then it's not quite time to celebrate just yet so let's not uncork the champagne is <laughs> <laughs> a kind of half Korean expression. Uh-huh. So um, when you look at you know the kind of books that get translated into English um, you see that only 1.5% of all books published in the UK are translations mm. and that's a really um, small number compared to other European markets um, compared to um, Germany or um, France or Italy um, where translated fiction is 12%, 15% and 19% of the respective markets. Mm-hmm. So that means that there's a greater demand for translated literature in the UK compared to the supply. I guess so. I, mean, the, I think the market is expanding steadily um, also quite rapidly in the recent years. Mm-hmm. According to a recent research, the UK sales figures are pulled up by bestsellers, however, so the booksellers are really picky about you know who ends up on the shelves so I think that makes a huge difference like when you walk into a bookstore and what you actually find on those 
big big bookshelves right because mm-hmm. like you will grab what you see mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think in most uk um, bookstores they have what they call stuff picks or stuff recommendations mm-hmm. with actual handwritten notes about why they've picked the oh, those are really titles. cute yes yeah and you get completely sold by those actually recommendations um, because they have very smart ideas mm-hmm. as to why they like the books and then you're like oh you know i think i will like that too mm-hmm. so that's what the big bookstores are doing and then unfortunately the smaller independent bookstores who tend to be a lot happier to get translated books are fast disappearing i think mm-hmm. this is a phenomenon that you find all over the world actually not just in the uk mm-hmm. so only bestsellers are the exception and you know beyond those lucky few who make it to the big bookshelves you know the plight of translated fiction still remains pretty grim i must say mm. but then again it makes sense that booksellers want to stock books that will sell because it's it's good for their business but the stats that you quoted proves that readers want to read translated books they're looking for it mm-hmm. but then it's quite important to think about where this bias actually comes from mm-hmm. i think and um, with the current surprising result of the mm-hmm. brexit vote <laughs> and some people say that uh, the publishing industry still suffers from what they refer to as an insular mindset mm-hmm. and some even actually point to um what they call an imperialist complex Ooh. which i think is stretching it a bit too far uh-huh strong words <laughs> do you think do you think it's a it's a superiority thing um maybe i think it's also partly um, a convenience thing as well because like british publishers can work without speaking or reading other languages mm-hmm. you know which makes them unable to source foreign books say a book becomes really successful in french or german translation is still be unavailable for a british editor who is just completely monolingual mm-hmm. and some publishers um say that you know it's the money that's the problem that goes into having a book translated the minimum uk rate recommended by pen and the society of authors for translation is 90 pounds per 1000 words that is pretty sweet that is <laughs> i'm moving to the uk <laughs> what am i doing here this is like so much higher than what i've been you're doing our show that's what you're doing here. <laughs> maybe yes I should get paid £90 per, like, 1,000 seconds or something. That is fantastic. It is actually uh-huh. a very good deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in addition to that, um, if an author doesn't speak English, then, of course, an interpreter will need to be paid for public appearances. And I cannot stress how important it is to hire a good interpreter for mm-hmm. those public events. For like authors. Helen Cho. Yes. So... <laughs> And then, you know, it's not in every country that you find good funding um, or budgets for translation funds. Mm-hmm, so, that's true. You know, some languages have a bigger advantage when it comes to providing translation funds. Mm-hmm. So cost is just an excuse for the UK publishers because they can afford it. They have the funds. Mm-hmm. But then if you think about it, it all starts from school or like secondary education in a way, because mm-hmm. at school in the UK, students don't really need a re- translations so later it becomes difficult for them to develop that habit um, I remember when I was in high school in the UK, I only read books written by English or American authors. Mm. So that's really different from um, schools in France or Germany, for example. So school children below, um, say, like the last few years in the UK, are only asked to read literature originally written in English. Mm. I mean, to be fair, there is a great wealth of literature out there mm-hmm. written originally in English, but I think it's important that students are given an insight 
or a chance right. to explore other literatures. Mm-hmm, that's very true. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sit here and think about how many um, novels that I read in translation while I was growing up since you brought that up. Mm-hmm. But um, in the meantime, while I'm counting, um, let's listen to Jane Birkin, Yesterday, Yes, A Day. Yesterday, like any day Alone again For every day Seem the same sad way To pass the day So I counted, and as it turns out, I read a lot of Russian literature in Korean. Wow, Mm -hmm. good for you. Yes, good for me, good for me. (laughs) So there's another very important news from the international publishing world that you would like to share with us about uh, a bard, a certain bard. Very, very important news indeed. Oxford University's Press's new edition of Shakespeare's works will credit Christopher Marlowe as the co-author of the three Henry VI plays. The so, long-suspected theory has been confirmed. I mean, there's been rumors mm-hmm. about Marlowe's collaboration with yes. Shakespeare. There have been all sorts of rumors about Shakespeare, uh-huh. actually. <laughs> yeah, that's but that's, we'll save the conversation for uh-huh. another time. Yeah. So scholars have long suspected that Shakespeare's plays included the works of others, but then these new analytical methods helped researchers conclude that sections bore the hallmarks of Marlowe's hand in the three Henry VI plays. Oh, wow. So was there an investigation process that led to this discovery? Mm -hmm. Um, There was a team of 23 international scholars and they really looked very closely at the works of Shakespeare to decide what could actually go into the complete works of Shakespeare collection. So they tried to decide who wrote what and, you know, for once and for all. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yes, for the Shakespearean scholars and the readership. Mm. So how many turned out to be not completely the Bard's work? Oh, you'd be really surprised to hear this. Yeah. The editors conclude that 17 of 44 <gasps> works of Shakespeare... 17? Yes. Oh my goodness. Isn't okay. that amazing? And so 17 of 44 works associated with Shakespeare had input from others. So Shakespeare, as it turns out, was a big-time collaborator. Uh-huh. Uh, they used computerized data to, um, sets to reveal patterns, trends, and associations. They looked at not just at um, Shakespeare's words, but also those of his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they probably looked at um, people's like speech patterns and what kind of vocabulary they use, and then they mm-hmm. they use the computer. Yes. <laughs> okay. So Christopher Marlowe must be very happy to hear that his words. Uh-huh. He's rejoicing in his grave yes. right now. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, Marlowe, if you could tell you a little bit about Christopher Marlowe, he was born in the same year as Shakespeare in Mm -hmm. um, 1564. He went to Cambridge University. He wrote poetry and plays um, such as Tamburlaine and Dido, Queen of Carthage. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting part. He was a part-time spy for the government of Queen Elizabeth I. Oh, I do remember hearing something about him being a spy. What a riveting life, a spy slash famous playwright. I know. <laughs> so we should both become literary translators slash something else. Uh-huh. Well, I'm a radio show host. Oh, okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Find your slash something else. <laughs> Will do. Uh-huh. And Marlowe died in uh, 1593, and he was stabbed under mysterious circumstances. Yes, so, so his own life and death were just as exciting as his own plays. Uh-huh. Was it Shakespeare who killed him? Maybe. Maybe okay. he was trying to cover up the fact that he had help from Christopher Marlowe. Who knows? Mm-hmm. 
So Oxford University Press now says that identifying Marlowe's hand in the Henry VI place is just one of the fresh features of their new project. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll probably hear some more exciting news from the, their project. So whoever is born and um, going to school from now on will will know the Henry VI place as Marlowe and Shakespeare, not just Shakespeare. Yes, exactly. Wow, what a different world. I know. Wow, that's kind of <laughs> mind-blowing. Yes. Anyway, that's it for this week's hot new releases. Thank you so much much helen for coming in today okay i'll see you next time coming up next is talk it up with anton her and sophie bowman but first here's charlotte gainsborg just like a woman I stand in 